This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This is a CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk? Now from Washington, here is CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. It was a targeted killing of an American journalist. It happened in Thessaloniki, Greece, a city then called Salonika, in May of 1948. Our reporter, the first permanently assigned to cover the Middle East for CBS, had written very critical things about the Greek government as it was fighting a civil war against communist guerrillas. From his home base in Athens, George Polk saw the right-wing authorities as corrupt, even fascist. So he said so, on the air and in print, to help Americans learn what kind of regime their taxpayer money was supporting. A 34-year-old, six-foot-tall, blonde Texan, Polk had flown for the Navy in World War II and written for some of the nation's biggest newspapers. He'd been selected as one of the Murrow Boys, the elite corps of newsmen depicting a rapidly changing and increasingly unnerving world. In May of 1948, Polk was just days away from wrapping up his overseas assignment. He was to head back home for a prestigious journalism fellowship at Harvard. But by apparent happenstance, he found himself in Salonika, close to the communists' hideouts in the nearby mountains of northern Greece. While there, Polk made one last attempt to locate and interview the leader of the communist guerrillas. It would have been a major scoop. But the night after he landed in Salonika, George Polk disappeared. A week later, his bound body was found floating in the bay. So who killed him? As far as the courts in Greece are concerned, the murder of George Polk was solved 75 years ago. A man confessed to playing a role. Two other men he would implicate were tried in absentia. But as you'll hear in this episode, the trial itself was an injustice, papered over by U.S. officials and the press. This is George Polk reporting from Athens. George Polk had that honesty and integrity, the reverence for fact and indifference to criticism, which gave him the respect of the men in his trade. I was afraid his life was in danger. I really believed it. 
Three days later, he was killed. George Polk's fully clothed body was found floating just below the surface of the bay on Sunday morning, May 16, 1948, within view of Salonica's bustling waterfront. Here's how Edward R. Murrow reported the details on the radio. George Polk had been shot to the back of the head at close range. The muzzle of the gun held firmly against the base of his skull. His hands and feet were tied. There were no signs of struggle. No blow had been struck. Now, George Polk's murder made worldwide headlines at a worrisome time for the Greek government. It was a year earlier, in 1947, that President Harry Truman had gone to Congress to ask for $400 million to support Greece and Turkey. Truman's theory, his Truman Doctrine, was that with American support, the growing Soviet influence across Eastern Europe could be contained. The very existence of the Greek state is today threatened by the terrorist activities of several thousand armed men led by communists. Truman acknowledged that Greece's government wasn't perfect, that it had been operating in an atmosphere of chaos and extremism, that it had made mistakes. Our reporter knew that well, and he said so on the air in late 1947. As to who is winning this Greek civil war, well, perhaps the situation here in Athens is the best answer. We now have running water only three hours each day. It was the inefficient, ineffectual, and arguably corrupt right-wing government that Polk covered, which was now charged with finding his killer in the middle of a civil war. And the man who headed the investigation was Salonika's chief of police, a man named Major Nicholas Muskindis. The poor guy simply could not come up with anything. Johnny Atreides grew up in Salonika. Now aged 90, he's a retired professor of international politics at Southern Connecticut State University and a noted expert on the Polk case. As we mentioned in our last episode, after the murder, America's most prominent journalists formed a committee and hired their own investigator, the man known as the father of American intelligence, General Wild Bill Donovan. Donovan is charged with the responsibility of going over to kind of oversee the way the Greek authorities are handling the investigation. Frustrated by the lack of progress more than two months after the killing, Donovan told the Greek authorities in a meeting in late July that an arrest was desired. As the founder of the Office of Strategic Services, the wartime entity that begat the CIA, Donovan brought with him to Greece a former OSS officer named Jim Kellis. Kellis spoke Greek, and he had sources all over the country. Within just a month and a half, Kellis ran circles around the Greek investigators who hadn't developed any strong leads to date. By early August of 1948, Kellis compiled a list of 10 names of people with whom Polk had interacted over his final two days in Salonika. He says in his note to Donovan, these people ought to be questioned. At the end of Kellis's list was a name Donovan found particularly intriguing and the world-famous spymaster, sent to Greece on behalf of the American press, told the police to focus on him. Like George Polk, Gregory Stuktopoulos was a reporter. He wrote for a local newspaper in Salonika and offered occasional dispatches from there for the Reuters news service. Of interest to Donovan, Stuktopoulos was rumored to have leftist leanings, and he was seen briefly meeting Polk at a hotel the night before our man disappeared. But the leading cause of Donovan's suspicion was perhaps the most innocuous fact about Stactopolis. You see, Polk didn't speak a word of Greek, and Donovan suspected he would have needed an interpreter 
to safely make his way to the communist guerrilla hideout in the mountains. There was no evidence of anything regarding the case. The only evidence was that Stactopoulos spoke English. That's Sofia Nikolaidou, an author and playwright who lives in Thessaloniki. We walked together on the streets of the city to discuss her lifelong interest in the Polk case. It formed the basis of a book she wrote more than a decade ago. The name of the book was The Scapegoat in English, uh, but in Greek, the title was uh, When the Elephants Dance. And what did you mean when you said that? When the elephants dance, the ants pay. When the elephants dance, the ants pay. Yeah. Someone small gets hurt. Someone small pay for the big. Sophia was more comfortable speaking in Greek, so we asked a friend of hers to translate. So it doesn't just concern the history of this town, but it's the beginning of the Cold War. And a story that has everything. It has blood. It has conspiracy. It has politics. And something that touches our heart, injustice. A man had to be lost in order to save a country. Gregory Stectopoulos would become that lost man. A guilty man had to be held responsible. And we needed money from America, but America was furious at us because we had killed her golden boy. Sophia Nicolaido walked me through what happened to Gregory Stactopoulos on the afternoon of August 14, 1948. A policeman taps him on the shoulder and asks Stactopoulos to follow him to the police station. Nothing bad crosses his mind because he had recently reported the theft of his laundry, which was hanging out to dry. Decades later, in an interview for 60 Minutes, Gregory Stactopoulos recounted what happened next. Five men who were supposed to be interrogators, but they were torturers, simply torturers. Stactopoulos says over a span of weeks, Major Muskandis and his men employed brutal tactics, electric shocks, beatings, isolation in darkness. He was kept blindfolded. My eyes were always tied. He was tougher than they had originally thought. They thought he would be easy. And they were actually, at the police station, they were actually pla- placing bets on how easily they would be able to get a confession out of him. Stactopoulos says he twice attempted suicide, and then he learned the police had also brought in his mother. I adored my mother. She was the most precious person I had on earth. At the time of his arrest, Stactopoulos was 38 years old, unmarried, and working to support his mother and his two sisters. He did not give in until his mother was brought in and he saw her going up the stairs. Police had just one piece of physical evidence that they could use to tie Stectopolis to George Polk's murder. Our reporter's 1945 War Department ID card had been sent to a police station in Salonika before his body was found in the water nearby. Once again, Professor Johnny Atreides. The investigators, Muscundis and company, determined that the handwriting on the envelope was Sartopoulos's mother's. And they claimed that they found proof that the handwriting was hers. After weeks of torture, culminating in the news that his dear aging mother would also be implicated in a murder, Stactopoulos signed a statement fingering two senior communists who, according to the account, 
actually committed the murder on a boat. Stectopoulos agreed to admit that he led Polk into the trap. When we come back, Stectopoulos goes on trial as Americans watch. Witnesses answered that the communists must have done it. The case that was built against them was almost completely worthless. A conviction was needed to put the case to rest. Next. The CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, continues. I'm Stephen Portnoy. We're bringing you the story of a CBS News correspondent who was murdered 75 years ago in Thessaloniki, Greece, a city that was then known as Salonika. We've told you of George Polk's murder, how he was found in the Salonika Bay, shot in the back of the head, bound at his hands and feet, all after he was critical of Greece's right-wing government during that country's civil war of the late 1940s. Now, by this point in our story, a fellow reporter has been arrested by police. After weeks of torture and a charge against his mother, that man confessed that he led Polk to his death. In September of 1948, Gregory Stactopoulos signed a statement admitting that he agreed to take Polk to meet the leader of the communist guerrillas for an exclusive CBS News interview. Don Hollenbeck reported the details of the case against Gregory Stactopoulos on CBS Radio. At the time of his arrest, he was employed by one of Salonika's right-wing newspapers. His mother, Anna, 68, was accused of having sent the police George Polk's identity card before the correspondent's body was found. Also named in the official charge was Adam Muzanides, 42, once a communist deputy in the Greek parliament and a member of the party's central committee, and Evangelos Vasvanas, 42, also a prominent communist. The government named Muzanides as the actual trigger man, Stactopoulos as the finger man. In other words, the government's theory of the case, which Stactopoulos signed, had the fellow reporter leading Polk into a trap. Two senior communists, Muzanides and Vasvanas, were identified in Stactopoulos' statement as the actual murderers. The confession's detailed narrative had Stactopoulos meeting Polk for dinner at Salonika's Luxembourg restaurant on Saturday, May 8, 1948. The two had only briefly met once before, the previous night, over drinks with other American reporters. After dinner, a fishing boat was to take the pair away from Salonika to the contacts who would lead Polk to General Marcos Vafiades, the commander of the communist guerrillas. Stectopoulos said that the noted communist figure Adam Muzanides was at the boat's oars. The men got in. The boat then headed down the coast to pick up Vangelis Vasvanas, who began to row. Stactopoulos said in his confession that he was the only man on the boat who spoke both English and Greek. He said Muzanides instructed him to tell Polk that at this point in the journey, he would have to be blindfolded and bound. A handkerchief was used to cover Polk's eyes. Rope was used to tie his hands and feet. Stectopoulos said the four men were a mile off the coast, about five to ten minutes later, when he heard the sudden shot. Polk immediately slumped. Stectopoulos said Muzanides fired the gun and began to rifle through Polk's pockets. Left undisturbed were hundreds of dollars worth of cash and traveler's checks, Polk's wedding ring and watch, but taken his War Department ID card, which the confession says Muzanides handed to Stectopoulos to keep. Stectopoulos said he was led off the boat with firm instructions to mail the ID card to police and not to say a word to anyone about the murder or else. He said he didn't know what the two communists did with Polk's body. Stectopoulos said he went home and had his mother fill out the envelope addressing it to the 3rd District Police Station. All of this was in Stectopoulos's confession, but it all posed a bit of a problem for police and prosecutors because by the time of George Polk's murder in May of 1948, Two men Stectopoulos named in his confession, Adam Muzanides and Vangelis Vasvanas, were both reported to have been killed in the ongoing civil war. 
plus key elements of Stectopolis' story would change over time. But none of it mattered, for the Greek government had charged Gregory Stectopolis and his mother, and they would both go on trial the following spring. CBS News sent correspondent Winston Burdett to cover the proceedings in April 1949. On a hard black bench in the well of the courtroom sat two defendants. One was a sharp-faced, stoop-shouldered man, 39 years old. The other was an old woman, 68. The man was Gregory Stactopoulos, the Salonika newspaper man. The old woman was his mother. The two other defendants, Muzanidis and Vasvanas, were tried in absentia. Of course, they had both been reported killed before George Polk's murder. But prosecutors suggested that may have been a cover story. For himself, Stactopoulos denied premeditation. With tears in his eyes, he told the ten jurors that as far as he ever knew... Until the moment the fatal shot was fired, he was just helping an American colleague who wanted to visit the Greek guerrillas. In his reporting on the trial, Winston Burdett made it clear that Stectopoulos was given ample opportunity to tell his story in open court and to call as many witnesses as he wanted. But Burdett also noted how odd the whole thing seemed through an American journalist's lens. The most startling thing for Western observers was the fact that under Greek law there are no rules of evidence at all. Everything from vague hearsay to personal opinion is tossed in together. From the bench came a shower of leading questions that would have made an American lawyer in an American court demand a mistrial then and there. Sitting in the courtroom to witness all of this was George Polk's younger brother, William. Well, the trial, had it been held anywhere in the United States, would have been laughed at. William Polk was 17 years younger than George, which meant he was a teenager at the time his brother became a network newsman. All during my childhood, he was away. He was traveling around the world. And all those years, he was a distant figure to me, although we saw one another from time to time. It wasn't really until I went out to visit him in Cairo in 1946 that we became friends as well as, as brothers. George Polk reporting from Cairo. Now back to CBS in New York. That year, Bill Polk spent six formative months with his brother in Cairo, effectively serving as the newsman's apprentice. George was probably the most important person in my father's life. They were incredibly close. Bill's daughter, Milbury, told me the brother's aim was to be reunited in the fall of 1948. Dad was on his way back to start Harvard. He was 17 then, and George was going to finish up his CBS work and become a Neiman Fellow and join him at Harvard, and they had a lot of plans. But in the spring of 49, Bill Polk put his studies on hold to bear witness to the trial of the purported killers of his beloved older brother. And he wasn't impressed with the prosecution's case. In 1990, he would tell 60 Minutes. I had no doubt that the communists would have killed him if they thought it was to their advantage. But uh, in, in my experience, um, they were very anxious to get publicity. And so they would have done everything they could to facilitate what he was doing. Remember, George Polk was hoping to interview the reclusive General Marcos, the head of the communist guerrillas in his mountain hideout. He'd written Edward R. Murrow just before he disappeared that he aimed to meet Marcos with a contact through a contact. Polk said in that final letter that he would go blindfolded if necessary. The prosecution used those details to tie Gregory Stectopoulos to the crime. Then 18, Bill Polk just couldn't believe it. But as he squirmed in his seat, he found himself beside the overbearing presence of General Wild Bill Donovan. Donovan was a, uh, a big, blustery, hail fellow, well-met uh, person on the surface. An extremely careful and calculating man underneath that. Donovan, the founder of the CIA's forerunner, the OSS, was a prominent New York lawyer who had been hired by a committee of top journalists 
to oversee the Greek investigation into George Polk's murder and then report back. I find it almost impossible to believe that he couldn't have just been laughing up his sleeve all during the trial. Bill Polk remembers airing his doubts about Stactopoulos' guilt to General Donovan. And as the Harvard freshman continued to convey his misgivings, Polk says the former spymaster started spewing threats. Donovan was extremely angry, accused me of being pro-communist, of uh, everything else that you can imagine, and among other things, he said, you'll ruin your career if you keep up this line of inquiry. Author Kati Martin. It was a very intimidating thing for a young man to uh, be told that by a character who was that legendary and considered an American patriot. To be told basically by such a man that, do you love your country? If you love your country, then be quiet. There would indeed be ramifications for Bill Polk, just as General Donovan had warned. U.S. officials were watching. His skepticism of the trial was written up in confidential cables sent to the State Department. America's top diplomat in Salonika wrote of Polk's sullen dissatisfaction with the proceedings. The consul wrote, his attitude continues to flash a warning signal of possible dangers ahead. About a dozen years later, when he sought to enter government service, William Polk would be hassled about all this by the FBI. Accused of communist sympathies, he had a tough time getting a security clearance. Despite it all, he would never let go of his interest in getting at the truth of his brother's murder. In fact, up until his death in 2020, at age 91, he was still working on a manuscript about the case. His daughter Milbury remembers. George really was a father figure, and then a brother, and then a best friend. So. For him, it was all wrapped up in one person, and he, it never left him. It was, it was this wound in him that he could never really heal. When we return, Gregory Stectopoulos meets his fate. We've been focused in this episode on the only man to stand trial in the killing of George Polk. His name was Gregory Stactopoulos, and he was a reporter like Polk. He had met our Middle East correspondent briefly over drinks on the night of Friday, May 7th, 1948. But he confessed in court to much more, to taking Polk to dinner the following night and then to leading him into a trap set by two communists. We now know Stactopoulos's confession was the product of weeks of physical and psychological torture at the hands of the security police. There was also the fact that Stactopoulos's aging mother had been jailed. The trial was observed by American journalists who noted at the time how strange the proceedings were, how freewheeling the atmosphere was, how speculative the testimony, and how often inconsistencies emerged from the defendant's own confession when compared with what other witnesses had said. As CBS's Winston Burdett put it, in April of 1949, We have only the word of one man. Did Stactopoulos and Polk really take a taxi? No Salonika taxi man remembers them. Did they really dine in public at the Luxembourg Café? The cafe proprietor does not remember seeing them that night. It would have made a better impression on Western observers also if one of the four Greek character witnesses called by the defense had shown up in court. They were all ill on that particular day. Nobody was willing to go to court. They were all afraid. On the streets of Thessaloniki, which is what Salonika is now called, I asked local author Sophia Nicolaito, why the defense witnesses shied away. There was a lot of fear um, at the time because of the civil war, and nobody wanted to be accused of being communist. Despite the flimsy evidence and contradictory testimony, and based solely on his own confession, Gregory Stectopoulos was found guilty of being an accomplice to the murder of George Polk. He was sentenced to life in prison. His mother, whose handwriting was said to be on the envelope that contained Polk's credential, was acquitted. 
In April 1949, Winston Burdett summed up his reporting from Salonika this way. The Greek police say their investigation into the murder will go on. It should. After the trial, Gregory Stectopoulos was brought back to Salonika. He wasn't held in a typical prison. Instead, he was taken to the basement of the General Security Police Station. I stood with Sofia Nicolaito on the street where that police station used to be. They didn't want him to go to prison so that he would not be able to speak with others, and uh, they wanted him to be isolated. The idea is if he were in a regular prison, he might start to talk about the fact that he had not truly been complicit in Polk's murder and that that story would have gotten out. But here, in the basement, on this street... No one could see him. Aztectopoulos stayed in that dark basement. His family suffered. The heart of my mother was not a strong one. She couldn't endure this tragedy. She died about a year later from heart failure. Through the 1950s, as the Civil War ended and Greece's political winds shifted, News of Stectopoulos' continued presence in the basement of the Salonika police station became a national scandal. In 1960, Greece's justice minister commuted Stectopoulos' life sentence and ordered him freed from prison. He would spend the rest of his life seeking to have his name formally cleared with the help of attorneys like Ilias Anagnostopoulos. The court convicted Stectopoulos because he admitted to the charges. You know, the law says here that it is not enough that reasonable doubts arise. You must present evidence which make his innocence obvious. A total of four attempts by Stactopoulos and then his widow to convince Greece's Supreme Court to reopen the case and overturn his conviction have failed. In the mid-1980s, Stactopoulos wrote a book about his ordeal. He died in 1998. Eight years before his death, for 60 minutes, Stactopoulos was asked by Ed Bradley, whom he most blamed for his treatment. He said, of course, the Greek police who tortured him. But then he added this. I know fully the meaning of this word. I am using connivance of USA and especially Wild Bill Donovan. After all, it was Donovan who pointed to Stectopolis from a list of possible leads. It was Donovan who urged Greek investigators to pursue him. And it was Donovan who bullied Polk's younger brother through the trial when he raised doubts about the innocent man's guilt. Why would the father of American intelligence be content to see Stactopoulos rot in prison? And why did American reporters drop the story? It was, frankly, a, a cowardly performance. That's next. The CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, continues. I'm Stephen Portnoy. The murder of a CBS News correspondent in 1948 was a tragedy for the families of George Polk, our late colleague, and Gregory Stectopoulos, a man sentenced to life in prison for having a role in the killing. But it was also tragic for American journalism and for the U.S. itself, because the full story of the murder also involves a cover-up. If you're just joining us, you can hear this program in its entirety at cbsnews.com slash polk. At cbsnews.com slash polk. In our last segment, we told you of how Gregory Stectopoulos spent the rest of his life trying to clear his name. His repeated attempts to have his conviction overturned by Greece's Supreme Court fell flat. 
With the death of his widow and the fact that the couple had no children, it's believed there's no one left withstanding to lead the charge for justice. Most Americans in court to witness the 1949 trial were aghast at the lack of corroborating evidence to show Gregory Stactopoulos had anything to do with Polk's killing. But one American lawyer who sat in the courtroom seemed perfectly content to see it all unfold. General Wild Bill Donovan, who was a war hero, he was the founder of the OSS, and really played a treacherous part in the cover-up of this murder. That's Conti Martin, author of the book, The Polk Conspiracy. Donovan really was there to make sure that someone was held to account for this crime, and it almost didn't matter who that was. Bill Donovan was an army general who earned the nickname Wild Bill in his youth, either in uniform or as the quarterback on the football team at Columbia. During World War II, he founded the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA. But Harry Truman did not trust him and didn't want him anywhere near the new CIA. CIA historian Randy Burkett. Donovan had a lot of enemies in Washington. The FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, hated the OSS and hated Bill Donovan. And as long as Truman's in office, he has no hope of getting back in with the CIA. By May of 1948, Donovan had returned to private practice at a law firm in New York. That's when the news broke. The body of George Polk, Middle Eastern correspondent for the Columbia Broadcasting System, was found floating in the Bay of Salonico, Greece, on the morning of May 16th. Within weeks of the killing, fearful that the Athens authorities might not be that interested in pursuing justice, some of this country's leading broadcasters and newspaper publishers formed a committee. The noted columnist Walter Lippmann chaired the effort and he asked General Wild Bill Donovan to run the investigation. We now know that Donovan had an outsized influence on the way the Greek authorities pursued the case. He met with them privately, pressured them to make a swift arrest, and ultimately to pursue an innocent man, Gregory Stectopoulos. Again, CIA historian Randy Burkett. Donovan comes back and tells Lippmann that he thinks they got the right guy. The guy confessed, he observed the trial, the trial was above board. But George Polk's younger brother, William, then a Harvard freshman, knew better. In 1990, on 60 Minutes, Bill Polk recounted how Donovan threatened him and warned him his continued questioning of the case would hurt his career. From what Donovan told me, he said specifically, we are in a war and we have to fight that war, that Donovan would have simply regarded uh, Stoktopoulos as an expendable soldier. I asked Randy Burkett why the father of American intelligence would sit through a sham of a show trial and say nothing. Here's the CIA historian's theory. Donovan was himself under a lot of attack during these years that he had been far too soft on communists, that he had allowed too many communists into the OSS. He had worked with communists around the world. And of course, that was all true because we, let's face it, we were allies with the Soviet Union fighting the Germans. Donovan felt very vulnerable to these charges and he had hope still of becoming the director of the CIA. So I think this is, it's, it's a somewhat embarrassing, shameful period of his life, but it's one that he didn't feel he had any other options. Formerly secret government documents, which I reviewed at the National Archives, paint a picture of collusion between Donovan and American diplomats. One memo from October of 1948 details a conversation Donovan had with the top State Department official charged with overseeing affairs in Greece from his desk in Washington. That official, William Baxter, warns of the risks of American reporters airing doubts about the Greek government's case against Gregory Stectopoulos. The memo summarizes the talk this way. 
General Donovan realizes that this kind of propaganda campaign should not be allowed to gain any momentum. The memo also notes Donovan's view that 18-year-old Bill Polk, quote, seems to have sold out completely to the commies. Kati Martin. We, the United States, our people on the ground in Athens, may not have been co-conspirators in the murder, but we definitely were co-conspirators in the cover-up. And the newsmen largely averted their gaze from that fact. And in fact, um, they celebrated uh, Wild Bill Donovan's non-achievement in, um, in, in solving this case. It was, frankly, a, a cowardly performance and, and very disappointing. Historian Ilias Vlanton. The real crime was American journalism's failure to pursue the case and pick up on the cover-up, which was clear for most people who followed it closely. I think one of the problems of American journalism, probably 10 times more now than then, is that you just keep on going to the next story. Winston Burdett, who covered the trial for CBS News, put it this way in 1990. They didn't say it's over and done with or in any way overtly wash their hands of the affair. They simply never assigned me or anyone else to follow up on the case. Conti Martin sums up the industry's lack of interest in the case after Stectopolis' sentencing. They dropped the story because Washington wanted it dropped, because it was the Cold War and because the stakes were higher than one reporter's life. For that reason, I'm really, really grateful that the story is being retold today. This retelling, the first on this CBS network in decades, has been done largely through the work of those like Conti Martin, who spent years unearthing secrets. Elias Vlanton was one of the first historians to look into the Polk case in the late 1970s as he researched America's involvement in the Greek Civil War. Then I found one file on Polk, and that file was his death certificate. And I thought, oh, that, that's it. And I was ready to move on, but there was a, a, a cross-reference. And when I requested the cross-reference, there were thousands of pages. In 1977, Vlanton and a co-author wrote a cover story about Gregory Stectopoulos' innocence for the then-influential journalism publication Moore Magazine. In the late 1980s, after meeting William Polk, Kati Martin began digging into the details of his older brother's murder. I became obsessed with this case and, and you know, had my bulletin board in front of my laptop, had all these, these Greek players. Through her extensive reporting, Kati Martin got in touch with figures who were directly involved in the case. Then I caught the big break from inside the Donovan investigation. Kati Martin would uncover evidence of a motive for George Polk's killing that had gone unpursued by Greek investigators, even as U.S. officials spoke of it. It started with a letter Polk received just before his death. Polk could have a huge story on his hands if he broke that story. Three days later, he was killed. That's next. CBS News Middle East correspondent George Polk was murdered at the height of the civil war he was covering. It was a struggle between the American-backed right-wing government of Greece and the communist guerrillas based in the mountains in the north. In our last episode, we told of how George Polk wound up in the city now known as Thessaloniki, then called Salonika. It wasn't his plan to land there. His flight to the coastal town of Kavala was diverted. George's wife, Rhea, a flight attendant 14 years younger than him, had been planning to join George on his return to the States. We were packing to leave, and he said, I want to go take a last look 
around the country. Rhea Polk recalled in a 1990 interview for 60 Minutes that she decided not to join George. I had a, a very bad feeling about northern Greece. At the height of the Greek Civil War, Greek authorities pinned the crime on communists. But there was another motive that police never looked into. Just days before his death, George Polk had a tense meeting with one of Greece's most powerful officials, the country's foreign minister, Constantine Saldaris. Right after this meeting, he said, I, I'm afraid I blew my top. And I told Saldaris and his company that I'll see to it when I go to the States, that I will blow the lid on them and they will not be in power anymore. Rhea was only 20 at the time. Well, I said, darling, is this a remark to make? It's a very strong remark, especially in civil war. It's very dangerous. Rhea didn't know exactly what her husband said to the foreign minister, but she knew that since he'd been writing things critical of the government for broadcast and in a widely read article in Harper's Magazine, the couple had been receiving threats. He was getting anonymous phone calls because of articles he wrote, and now to tell the head of the government, the ruling party, that he was going to uh, uh, blow the lid on them and have them go out of power. That's a dynamite. I was afraid his life was in danger. I really believed it. In her book, The Polk Conspiracy, author Kati Martin writes that Polk had received a letter in the mail just days earlier. The letter informed George that the foreign minister, Konstantin Saldaris, had just deposited $25,000 in a private bank account in New York against the law of Greece, against the law of foreign aid, and that Polk could have a huge story on his hands if he broke that story. So George, being a good reporter, a responsible reporter, went to Konstantin Saldaris, the uh, head of the right wing, and said, I've got the goods on you and I'm going to blow it sky high. Rhea Polk believed the exchange with Saldaris was fatal. I think he paid for that remark with his life. I really do. Three days later, he was killed. So I think this is too much of a coincidence. The information about a Saldaris deposit in a New York bank account was not a secret that died with George Polk. In our next episode, we'll look at what declassified U.S. documents show about the motive the Greek authorities never bothered to explore. Kati Martin walks us through her theory of precisely who killed George Polk, and we'll look at what experts say about what British officials might have had to do with it. Whether it was the British authorities or the Greek police or the Greek militia all had this young American in their gun sights. Who Killed George Polk, a CBS News special, has been written and produced by me, Stephen Portnoy, and Paul Woodhull. Additional production by Jamie Benson. Craig Swagler is our executive producer. Special thanks to Rich Lamb, David Plotkin, and the CBS News Archives. And from 60 Minutes, Claudia Weinstein, Rebecca Chertok-Gonsalves, Chris Layden, Gene Solomon Langley, and the late Ed Bradley. This CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, is sponsored by the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists dedicated to press freedom and media literacy around the globe. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.